Today I got Ibrahim with me. Ibrahim, can you like say your full name? Yes, my name is Ibrahim Ahmed. Okay. Um, we have some audience members here that are laughing, but it's all good. Yeah. I, I'll, I, I will leave a disclaimer. Anything I say at this point in time cannot be used against me. Hopefully not. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's certain information you may ask uh, uh, that may be subject to attorney client privilege, but I will disclose whatever I can with respect to questions that you may have about my business. Very serious, folks. So Ibrahim is a lawyer. He's been a lawyer for how long? Uh, five years. Five years? I'm going to six, yeah. I'm just going to get straight to the point. Why did you choose to become a lawyer? Uh, that's quite a long story, but I'll, I'll keep it as brief as possible. Um, when I was in college, uh, in high school towards college, a lot of my family members are business owners and they have, they deal with legal, legal trouble with respect to different types of businesses that they run, um, partnership disputes and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And I was, I grew up in that environment where I saw a lot of problems that people faced on a regular basis, uh, including family members going through stuff. And I figured, you know, if there was a way I could alter the system, and I'm not trying to be cliche, uh, with my response, but if there was a way I can kind of make a change um, and improve uh, people's lives, you know, that would be, you know, the legal route would be the route for me. Um, and then I dealt with, you know, uh, some some cases on a personal level for our family uh, that really inspired me to take it up a notch uh, with respect to practicing law and having my own firm and whatnot. So a question, like, so, say for example, someone just graduated law school would you advise them to join a law firm or start their own practice? Uh, you have, I can't say you don't have, you have to, because I'm an exception to the, to the rule, to the norm, okay. I, would, I would say, but um, you're gonna, you're, you need some experience. You need some legal experience in order to, uh, in order to cater to your clients and to provide adequate representation and, and uh, zealously advocate for them. So if you don't have the skill sets, you don't have the knowledge, um, then you're not gonna, you're, you're not going to be able to accomplish that. So. Um, a lot of that's built over time through experience, uh, dealing with clients, not just the law itself, but understanding how clients function, uh, what their thought process is, um, explaining to them the procedural aspect, the law, um, kind of aligning their goals with, uh, with what you can do for them uh, so that there's no miscommunication and no problems. And a lot of times in the legal industry, the majority of issues that attorneys have down the line when they're dealing with, let's say, an ethics complaint, is lack of communication, you know, where they're not able to give the client what they're looking for, not because it's the lawyer's fault, but because there's a system and there's a court process that they don't control. Like, they don't control, for example, when the client has a court date, if they if they file a motion, they have to wait for the court date. Things change, um, their court appearances can change, the judge can change it uh, based on his schedule, right? So, and as an attorney, you need to be able to advocate for a client, but you also need to be able to explain to your client very clearly what you're doing for them. And uh, they have a very clear ground uh, with respect to how things are moving forward. So I would say um, if you if you graduated law school, you certainly need not only the legal experience, but you need to have people skills. And it's a, it's a very important component of the, of the legal realm. So if you don't have those skills, and, and, and quite frankly, I see a lot of attorneys that have been practicing for quite some time, and may, they may have not developed it. And they're great attorneys; they're great in front of a judge, and, you know, when they're having oral arguments. Um, but the people skills and, and having that communication with the client uh, is, I think, as vital as having the legal knowledge. Yeah. So you just figured one day, it's like I can do this myself. 
Start a firm? It, it, so it, 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 that's not how it started ex exactly. Um, when I graduated law school, I went to Albany Law. Uh, when I graduated, I uh, I got a position at Garcia Scribner LeBrock. I worked there for you know five six months. I worked at Connell Foley for a little bit. I worked at a, a, another law office. So I worked at a few firms. I built some experience, but really where I I, I honed in on my skill set and my ability as a lawyer was dealing with. Um, uh, pretty uh, hefty uh, lawsuits representing business partners for uh, family, friends, uncles, people that I have good relationship with. They, they would come to me and say, hey, listen, here's a case, can you handle it for me, yeah. right? Um, and a lot of those type of cases are very costly. So people would you know, assume, hey, he's a young guy, from a cost-benefit analysis, at least he can, he can do something. If he can do something on the cost side, um, that would be ideal for, for the client as well. So. I was able to help facilitate that for them and, and able to represent them. So I was kind of thrown in the cage. That's what I would say, and kind of you have to learn how to fight one way or the other. But then there's like a point where you're like, I can't keep giving discounts to like family and friends when it comes so, to these big cases. Yeah, so what I would say is the first, you know, two years when I was practicing and I started my own, when I had my firm, I would say a lot of the work was essentially pro bono. So it's a sacrifice you have to make. You know, if you want to, to create your firm, you know, and you want to establish a business that's going to be successful, you have to invest in yourself, you have to invest in your firm, you have to put in countless hours, you know. You know, working at, a form, at, a, at another law firm for someone else, working 40, 50 hours, yeah. is not sufficient. You're going to have to work 78 hours a week, and you're going to have to, uh, you're going to have to understand that clients are not willing to pay the amount that they would pay a bigger firm, right? Um, and you have to kind of go through that, and, and, and it develops you as a person, it shapens your ability, your skill set, your people skills, it teaches you how to negotiate with respect to the retainers as well. So, I would say the first two, you know, two two years, you know, you have to decide if you're going to start your firm whether this is something that you're going to be able to do uh, and and be able to to understand that this is an investment in yourself and also understand that you are not going to profit as much as you want to. Because most kids, when they come out of law school, they say, hey, you know, even right now, like when I, when I interview attorneys um, that are graduates, um, they'll come to me with an eighty, ninety, a hundred thousand dollar salary request, but they have no idea what they're doing. They don't, you know, they. Um, and I've had interviews, and I asked, "What's your experience?" Maybe did a clerkship, um, which is good, but a lot of times they don't haven't even done a clerkship, and they want to. They want these big salaries. They want What's these clerkship? big paychecks. Uh, clerkship is a is a position after um, a student graduates from law school where they get to work under uh, with a judge. Okay. So my brother did a coach. He worked with a judge in the appellate division, okay. right? Um, and that helped hone his skill set because he reviewed a lot of motions. Um, he saw a lot of cases before the judge. Um, he saw interesting cases and whatnot. So it helps develop his writing skills. How the court, how a judge would think on a case, right? So it's a good skill to to develop um, uh, if you graduate out of law school. But you know, doing a clerkship or gra or just graduating and demanding, hey, these are my demands without having the experience. You can do that, you know, and that's not a problem, but you, it, it's gonna be hard for you to position yourself, graduate and say, hey, I wanna, I, want my, I wanna establish my firm, and I want my clients, to, you know, I wanna have a million clients, and I want, I want them to pay me X, Y, Z when you don't have the, the experience, right? Um, and even, you know, now, a lot of times when I'm doing my consultations with clients, I'm doing consultations in family law, in real estate, uh, partnership disputes, contract disputes, construction litigation, so a variety of areas in which I've kind of developed um, an expertise to a certain degree that I, I can handle a case like that. And then I can also train 
uh, the attorneys, but the attorneys that work for me are pretty experienced as well. So, you know. Let's, uh, let's get to the juicy part. All right. First, what was the most craziest case where you're like, I can't believe this is happening, and that I'm dealing with this case? There's a lot of crazy cases that I've dealt with, and it's hard to uh, just say, hey, this is open. there's one case over the top, but if I was to pick a case, it was a case, and you know, I, I'm going to keep it as confidential as possible, so I won't you know, uh, state the name of any parties. But it was a case with respect to monies owed. It was a, essentially a partnership dispute. The partnership dispute uh, resulted in a lawsuit against the client that I represented. Um, and then the party that filed suit tried to incorporate family members, people that have nothing to do with the case, and essentially, uh, essentially retaliated by filing the lawsuit, essentially. The way they proceeded on the case, you know, the case has been dragged on for years, yeah. and they would file motion after motion, essentially to torment the family, and there was no legal basis for a lot of the claims. Um, and that's a, a, something that I actually have an issue with, with respect to the legal system itself. Mm -hmm. And what I've seen throughout the process, and it's an unfortunate thing, and I hope it changes down the line, is that if a party has the financial ability to litigate, and another party does not have the financial ability to defend, mm -hmm. even if they have a case and they have a defense, their defense is not going to be heard and they can lose the case, on a procedural basis, and I see that happen often. Yeah. Um, and it's an unfortunate reality um, of the legal system. I don't know what the remedy and the solution of that is, right? But, you know, it does cost money to hire an attorney, so I do understand that. But to a certain degree, the courts need to, I think, take an approach with respect to frivolous litigation in cases that come across their desk that they know is frivolous, or um, kind of find, uh, find a way to expedite certain cases rather than letting it drag on. But then, you know, you have like the law system where it says everyone has a fair and equal chance. Yeah. Right? So if it goes onto their desk and they know it's it's a funny lawsuit or whatever and but they still have to file a motion, like how can you have like people you know, looking through this and knowing what's real and frivolous? That's 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 a good question. So the court this is a problem, right? This is a very good question. The problem is that someone can file a bogus lawsuit. Yeah. It has really to go has, through the system. Yeah, and, and it has to go through the system, right? Mm -hmm. And what happen, What has to happen is that the defendant has to hire an attorney, generally. Yeah. They, they, unless they do a pro se and they have legal knowledge and they know how to file a summary judgment motion or a motion to dismiss or, or yeah. something, right? Yeah. So they have to hire an attorney. Then the attorney has to then file a motion to dismiss. And a lot of times those motions it's so hard to be successful on a motion like uh, a motion to dismiss or some judgment motion. You have to demonstrate that there's no issues of material fact. So if there's one issue of material fact that's created by the other party, by the yeah. party bringing suit, right, then uh, then the case, the case will continue. So to give you an example, one of the cases I have, you know, a partnership dispute, right? Yeah. Now he, he ties in, you know, a family member and he says, oh, you know, the son, I gave the money to the dad, but actually some of the money was a loan to the son. And even though he and, no and, 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 and then what happens is I'll follow a summary judgment motion. There's no claim for unjust enrichment because he never even spoke to the son. Okay. And then the plaintiff will go in front of the judge and the plaintiff will say, well, your honor, I need to depose the son. And the son was 15 years old at the time. I need to, and now he's 19, 20. I need to depose the son to find out, you know, what the, what the conversation was like, whether he was aware of this loan, alleged loan. And, um, the case shouldn't be dismissed against that individual because we need a, we need more discovery, and that's what that's a word a fancy word that attorneys throw around discovery. 
the exchange of information between the parties. So what happens is, what happens is, okay, fine, well, we'll have discovery. He'll depose the, the son. He'll, he'll essentially get answers to questions he knows. He can just ask his client that. Yeah. But they go through that entire process. We find out they didn't speak to, he didn't speak to the son. Then what would happen is, let's say the attorney files a summary judgment to dismiss claims against the son, right? Because there's no relationship between that individual and the son. Yeah. What would happen then, the attorney can file a motion, oh, you know what, I, you know, I don't want to move forward on unjust enrichment. I think that he was part of this whole scheme and fraud. Now he amended the entire complaint, two years down the road. So what ends up happening is that individual, even though he's scot-free, he has nothing to do with anything, you know, he has no relationship with, the, with that partner, right? Um, and he's tied up in litigation for years. And guess what? If he doesn't have the legal remedy or legal means to defend himself, he's out. He could be out whatever the claim amount is. So let's say the claim is a million dollars, just hypothetically. Yeah. He's out a million dollars, and guess what? When he starts working, they can that that plaintiff can go into a garnishment on his wages, you know, because now he's an adult and he's working. And there's many things that can happen moving forward against him, and it can kind of ruin ruin his and ruin his life and his career. Yeah. Um, and it's unfortunate that the court allows this type of. But can't the judge look at it and be but, like, they don't know each other? The, the, the judge can, but I just mentioned if he amends the complaint, he changes the entire case yeah. against the son. He said, Your Honor, no, we're not doing the unjust enrichment. We're, we're claiming fraud. We're claiming breach of contract. We're claiming breach of fiduciary duty. Wow. And, and they're throwing in a bunch of other claims. Now, what we have to do, representing the defendant, we have to go through each of those claims, have another deposition, serve more discovery, find out where those claims are coming for, and then we have to dismiss those claims. We've got to now file another motion for those specific claims, right? So there's certain problems in the legal system itself. I'm not saying it's a bad system, right? I think it's it's a system that's way better than many other countries. Um, I think that there is a system for justice if you are wrong, which is great, but I do think that there's flaws in the system that, um, that you know hopefully down the line will change and i think the change will occur when the judges that actually work on you know that are handling the case are sticking to that case because what happens is you know every every year every two years there's a, a shift from one judge from one division to another division so if a judge is uh, working on a case on a, on a in a civil matter and he's transferred to the criminal court and there's a new judge that's completely clueless about the case right not because it's the judge's fault, he has to study the entire case. What's gonna happen? The case is gonna get delayed. The judge needs time. Um, so that, that typically happens on, on cases as well, you know, especially in superior court. We're not talking about special civil division where you're, you're suing for you know, $20,000, you know, maximum, the jurisdictional limit. We're talking about cases you know, in, in the multi-millions or half, 500,000, 100,000, anything above 20,000, right? Those cases could drag on forever. So it's, it's a problem. Um, for, for the clients too, because it costs money. So that case yeah. seems to be the most bothersome case for you. Um, to a certain extent, yes. That was that was a that was a bothersome case. Now yeah. That really shaped that, that really shaped my skill set. Oh. Now it's changing gears. What's the most hilarious case that you've ever done? The most hilarious case. Um, I gotta think. There's so many cases I would have to. I mean, no disrespect to the client, but yeah, I, I never want to disrespect the client. Some because, of these, because if, you, if it's hilarious, we may laugh. But, the, but I, we have a case, for example. Yeah. This is actually a, a funny one. Uh, she she wanted to file suit. Okay. Okay. We met her in person. She seemed like 
like a reasonable, normal person. She wanted to file suit with respect to a partnership business dispute. Okay. She claimed that a liquor license, you know, uh, was taken. She had a contract to provide liquor, and, and the contract was somehow uh, terminated uh, due to no fault of hers. And she lost. She's claiming she lost a lot of money. So we end up drafting and filing the lawsuit. And later on, we find out that she actually has no claim, and in fact, she has some sort of she's in the past day to a certain extent. I, I still don't know if that's true or not, but based upon the way she's talking, maybe she's schizophrenic or something. She would call the office every day, and then I started when I the really what happened is the defendant's attorney said my client doesn't even know this lady. Really, he has no idea who she is. Then we speak to our client, and then she starts saying she starts talking about her dog. She would call office, talk about her dog. She called office saying she's Ted Bundy one time. Um, she threatened, yeah, she threatened the firm. Uh, she threatened the staff. And then another day she, she, she would, uh, you know, call us and, and be very kind. And the next day she'd be really rude. She'd leave voicemails about 15 minutes long. So almost every day for, for months. Wouldn't be at the point where you're like, okay, you obviously lied, we're gonna drop. So that's, that's what we had to do, unfortunately. So yeah. we had to file a motion to withdraw from the case. We explained everything to her and the judge and the court actually granted the motion. Yeah. But she still calls us today, you know? Yeah. She will call us every single day. She'll talk about, you know, her dog. She just blocked She'll her talk number. About, we, we blocked the number. She calls from a different number. She calls from a third number and a fourth number and a fifth number and it doesn't stop. And that's scary. we're trying, to, and there's really nothing that we can do as an attorney, like, as attorneys, like, what am I going to do? I can file a claim harassment. Like, claim is, if she's already, she already suffers from schizophrenia or has some sort of handicap, there's nothing I can do to prevent her from calling my office, right? So she calls, and it's, it's hilarious now because we talk to her still. <laughs> yeah. We still pick up the phone and say, hey, so-and-so, how's everything? How's her family? How's life? And then she'll be mad, and then she'll be happy that we're talking to her. Um, maybe she's lonely. I don't know what it is, but it's one of those. Um, maybe that's your good deed for the day. Yeah, so it, 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 it happens almost every week. Um, there's a call in, and you're like, oh, okay, it's this line again. Yeah. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah. So, how's the firm today? Firm is uh, firm is great. Um, fortunately, um, I you know the firm has grown. I, I used to be a solo attorney, um, and then uh, attorney Fiaz joined me. My brother, attorney Abdul, uh, joined me as well. Uh, we have two uh, students that graduated from Rutgers Law. One passed the bar, a Saeed, who's going to become an attorney as well. He's part of the crew. Um, Zaid uh, also graduated from Rutgers Law, did a, a clerkship as well. Very knowledgeable experience, he joined us as well. Um, Andrew, um, uh, he handles the operations of the firm. He's a chief operating officer. So he, he's, re, you know, that's a skill set. He maintains the relationship with clients, uh, manages cases, manages the attorney's uh, portfolio, make sure. You know that we're on top of everything so he's uh, good at managing uh, that aspect of the business and it's actually vital to have someone like that because a lot of times when attorneys are busy or if the attorney does not have the skill set that communication skill set sometimes they, they lack luster in that but they're great at typing of motion or brief yeah. it's good to have someone you know that can that can deal with the clients and, and kind of level with them and be level-headed and then that's what Andrew does for the part. Hopefully Andrew listens to this and knows how much he's appreciated. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it seems like work takes over your life, so then what do you do then outside of work? Um, Is it on your mind 24-7 there's like a case? I feel like uh, there's no off switch when it comes to, to this work, unfortunately. And that's, that's, uh, it's good and bad. It's good for the clients, of course, right? Because you're always thinking about the cases you're trying to find avenues and solutions for them uh, which is why which is interesting because 
you can't bill them for the time that you think about their case yeah. if you're sleeping. You're, you're not. You can't. You, you only bill for actual work uh, that you do for them. Um, but uh, it's a rewarding profession to be in. You know, when you when you save someone from being evicted and from from being homeless, for example. That would be saddest case. Our saddest case turned into our one of our best cases. Um, this lady, she owed about fourteen thousand dollars in rent. And usually, when you see a case like that, if you file a motion for hardship stay or something, you know, a motion, the court just going to toss it out and say, "What's you hardship the money?" Stay? Hardship stay is, Your Honor, I can't. My client can't. You know, he's going to be able to come up with the rent, going to pay it, but he needs additional time to stay in the unit for you know up to six months, right? Of course, not going to really entertain that. In landlord tenant court, they're they're not sympathetic, right? It's it's just this is the law. You owe the money. If you come to court with the payment, you stay. If you don't, you don't stay. So I was able to. It was a sad case because I was a, I was able to push out her court appearances because I was trying to buy her as much time as possible. Yeah. Just kind of really all we could do and what we um, memorialized as far as the game plan. Um, but I also advised her to reach out to the state NJ uh, state for rental assistance. That's and idea. and I told her like, hey, in the meantime, try to do this. And fortunately for her, she was able to get the funds close to the amount that was owed. Minus maybe two thousand dollars that she um, she had to she had to sell her car actually to get that two thousand, but she was able to get the rental assistance. But even after she got the rental assistance, she entered into a consent order, which is an agreement, before she got the money, stating that she's going to make the payments by a certain date. Yeah. And the date was uh, October. I think it was the end of October, right? Was, I don't remember exactly. And she didn't come up with the money by that date. She came up with the money in November. Yeah. So they went. They moved forward with breach of contract, warrant of removal, they want to remove her. And I was able to negotiate a deal where I could say, hey, listen, give her a little bit more time. We have the money, we're holding escrow, let her stay, and okay. then we'll release the money. And so, she was able to stay, she was gonna be homeless. If she was going to be removed, she had no other place to go. How'd she find you? Um, a lot of people find us through, you know, just searching on Google. Um, uh, if, if they look up like, you know, landlord, tenant, attorney, something like that in New Jersey, we do pop up. Um, you know, we have different platforms for advertising as well. Uh, you know, we have build work for quite some time as well. Number one, uh, word of mouth, you know, clients are happy, they refer, uh, they refer uh, business to us, so. so. I'm looking at like your suit and your watch and everything. And people who are gonna be listening or watching this, people are listening, Marie has a really nice suit and watch on right now. Yeah. So for people who want to get to that level where they can spend it, what do you think they should do as a, business owner or someone wants to start out as a lawyer? Uh, if you're starting, so as an attorney, what one recommendation that I would you know, push forward is the way you talk, the way you look really matters. Um, if a client comes to your office and you're wearing a $100 suit, not, not saying anything against $100 suit, um, and you're really not dressed or you have stains on your, your shirt or, or, or whatnot, it, it has an impact because the, the client assumes that you know, you're not. You can't even take care of yourself. How are you going to take care of the case? Yeah. If your if your if your office is disorganized and you have folders everywhere, you know, and a client sees that, they may just walk out and say, "I don't want to hire someone that's that's not even organized." How is he going to handle my case if he's got 100 cases on his desk and they're they're not organized? So, as far as appearance is concerned, right? I I would suggest make you know try to buy a nice suit that you can wear comfortably and that's and you look respectable in it. Um, 
I like wearing watches. I do think that um, clients always take a look of oh, what type of watch he's wearing. It's just a natural thing. Yeah. He's wearing a Rolex. Oh, he's a good lawyer. Yeah. I'm not saying that makes someone a great lawyer. I mean, that's an old-fashioned thing. It's yeah. just it's just a natural. Oh, what car does he drive? So people look at these things, right? They look at the office, they look at the car you drive, the way you look, the way you talk. So all these things matter, and, and especially in our profession, a service-based profession, the way you dress, the way you talk is very important. You know, in any service-based profession in which you're having uh, interaction with someone, you have to look for something. So I would recommend to a client, um, you know, try to find some suits. You know, maybe fun to get a tailored. Uh, get a killer suit, um, you know, a nice watch. It doesn't have to be a Rolex. It could be a Movado, something so nice. That, you know, you start off with, with something small, right? Quick subject change, right? Yeah. What if you, uh, we have a client that you know is guilty, but he pays you to defend him and get all the charges off? Um, usually we know the client is guilty before they retain us. Okay. Uh, and every client has the right to legal counsel. Yeah. In cases where I see that the what they've committed as a crime is pretty extreme, mm -hmm. um, I tend not to try to take on that case. Okay. Just because for me, my conscience it, it doesn't accept. I don't. I can't accept it. Uh, and I had clients that came to me, uh, and they're like crazy cases, like child okay. pornography, okay. for example. Yeah. He came to me and he said. SWAT team came, they raided my house, they took my laptop, and they found child, child pornography on my, on my laptop. And instead of saying, how do I defend the case? He said, is there a way I can leave the country without getting in trouble? But he's also insinuating that he's innocent. So then it started making me, I started thinking like, if you're innocent, why are you trying to look at your exit strategies? Yeah. Rather than really, like if, if someone's innocent, Truly innocent, I, I might, this is my belief, and again, I could be making a, an incorrect assumption. They would say, I did not do X, Y, Z. I want to defend myself, I don't know how this happened, and I want you to hire me and figure out figure a solution to this. That wasn't the conversation. The conversation was, what can I do to kind of, can I leave, can I can I find a way out? Is there is there something that can be done? Yeah. So that was like, a case like that, although the, the retainer may be a hefty retainer, I, I just told them that it's not something that we can kind of take on. Just, yeah. but, but there are other cases, um, you know, where maybe someone committed a crime, okay. you know, because evidence entitled to representation on the criminal side. Someone committed a crime, and and um, there is a defense that they have, right? There's mitigating circumstances, and there's other reasons and rationale why it occurred. Yeah. So it's like, okay, he's he, he may be at fault, but it's not entirely at fault circumstances dictate, um, and he made a mistake. Uh, and we understand that, you know, and, and that we represent defendants all the time, right? So, you know, even on the civil side, let's say a client took money and the business failed. I mean, there's mitigating circumstances. If he invested all the money into the business, should he be required to pay back the plaintiff? Or should there be a way, a remedy for him, right? Um, is there certain protection? Is there an LLC, you know, can, he, can the plaintiff pierce the corporate bill and whatnot, right? So. And those type of situations, of course, we're going to represent and, 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 and try to take on that case and help uh, assist the defendant. So your, we have to mitigate damages. What was your worst loss? Worst loss? Um, now you're taking time. I, yeah. I don't uh, like you never lost before. <laughs> I actually, um, no, I mean, there, you, you win cases and there's certain cases, I don't consider them as a loss. I mean, obviously learning experience. No, it's not, it's not even, okay, there is learning experience. Yeah. I'll give you an example, right? 
you can and I'll, you can you can kind of clarify whether this is lost. Let's say um, the landlord is withholding the tenant security deposit, okay. right? The tenant files a lawsuit, and I'm representing the landlord. Mm -hmm. And I ask the landlord, "Hey, you have to return the security deposit by law. You have 30 days to return. Why course. do you return? Yeah, I didn't return it because you damaged property. Okay, so show me proof. And he shows you proof, and it's really not damage. It's not major wear. It's just wear and tear. It's not major damage to property. And I advise him. We go to court. We sit in the judge's chambers, and the judge says, you know, Ibrahim, tell your client to return the deposit, because if it goes to court, it's gonna go sideways. And then I go to the client, and I say, listen, I advise you to return the deposit, because that's what the judge said to me. Yeah. And if he if he proposes, no, I, I wanna push this forward, mm -hmm. right? And I have so many clients do that. They say, they, they really believe in their position. Yeah. And I say, okay, if you wanna push it forward, we can, but there isn't there is a possibility that you may lose. And then they lose the case mm -hmm. after the trial. Yeah. I don't consider that as loss because I advise the client of what could be, you know, the outcome. I mean, and, I, and, I, and I knew that, that yeah. we're going in that direction. But if the client is adamant on it, right, there's, there's really, and he truly believes in it and he's providing his proofs, yeah. and he wants to leave it to the judge's discretion, that is his prerogative. So I don't consider something like that a loss. So there are cases, you know, construction case, a uh, breach of contract case, a partnership dispute, consumer fraud case, you know, a real estate dispute, right, where there may be a possibility that the client's case uh, is weak, or we find out in discovery that his claims are meritless or substantially weaker than what we thought it would be. Yeah. And then we advise him of an exit strategy, but they want to persist. Um, and then, you know, because of that, um, they lose the case and they're not successful. But I, I don't consider that as a loss because, and it doesn't happen a lot. You know, it happens, it happens once in a blue moon, but, like but a client that's persistent. A you real know? loss, like you believed that you were going to win, that you worked really hard on, that you knew you were going to win something just came out um i have to think about this one yeah. there there is uh something that lets you down that you thought that you were gonna do it and then all of a sudden you know, you know you know the crazy part about the, the legal industry and just going in front of judges there have been cases where i thought i was gonna absolutely lose really in front of a judge and i and we had oral arguments so i'm like there's no way i'm gonna win this but i'm just gonna i'm just gonna swing right and uh, and see what happens, and and I'm successful, and I'm just like, wow, that was actually incredible. And then there are cases where I go in, I'm like, I'm 100% certain that the judge is going to rule my favor, and the judge doesn't, despite my, um, it's not not only me, like multiple attorneys reviewing the law and the facts on that, yeah. on that case, but the judge, I believe the judge made an erroneous decision, right? Just because the judge maybe didn't study the case. So there there are, there are cases. In which I've seen that type of result, and I was like disappointed. So here, let's, you know, let's because uh, you're a lawyer, right? Let's take a, a famous case like uh, what's that uh, former CEO of Theranos? What's her name? Uh, yeah, like Elizabeth something or whatever. Okay. Basically, long story short, she defrauded all of the investors. Uh -huh. She touted a machine that can tell all your diseases through a single drop of blood, mm -hmm. and she never showed it to anyone. She showed fake presentations. Uh -huh. Next thing you know, her company's worth like billions of dollars. Mm -hmm. And then when they find out, then now she went to court. She's going to jail for 11 years. Yeah. Right? Now, how do you, I guess you could say, how do you defend someone like that when you know? And now are actually like this. She knows she lost, right? So you can defend to lower the sentence. Yeah. But she wants to appeal it. Right now, for the lawyer, from a lawyer's point of view, it's like, all right, I guess we can appeal it and get a lower sentence, but the, it's been passed. So the problem, is, the problem is that 
people rely a lot, you know, they, 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 they have a lot of hope in themselves. And it's good to have to believe in yourself, right? To have conviction. Yeah. And you never want to take away hope from, from the client. So if someone is requesting an appeal, the reality is the majority of appeals, I would say, and I don't want to, I don't want to put, you know, say a statistic that's incorrect. Yeah. But I would say 80% of appeals, they get denied. Maybe closer to 90%. Okay. Um, so the reality is the appellate court is probably not going to change its stance on what the lower court has decided with respect to a case. Unless there's something clearly erroneous with the decision. Okay. Meaning that there is some some new evidence that came into fruition that no one knew about um, that should have been produced or some information the judge clearly overlooked, right? Um, I'll give you a quick example. Um, yeah. that, uh, that podcast murder series with that uh, Muslim guy, he was recently freed up. Oh, yes. Yeah. Was, was that Anand? Um, what was his first name? Anand? No, his first name was Anand, yeah. yeah. So what happened there? That's a very, I haven't really studied, I know that was on Netflix. That was also on Netflix. That, that was on Netflix. That was yeah. a very interesting series. I, really I, didn't, I didn't see the entire series, but he was, he was convicted of a murder. And, I think he was convicted and, of like killing his girlfriend. At the yeah, time. yeah. Yeah. And and then later on they found out some new evidence that, or some, I, I don't know if it was new evidence or evidence that was hidden or not provided by the prosecutor that was in their possession. Yeah. That they found out later and they said, hey, look, listen, this was, this is a mistrial because XYZ was not produced. And he was not, you know. I think it was uh, 21 years later. Yeah. And uh, they Those found are, out that the her other boyfriend, ex-boyfriend, also lived in the vicinity of other yeah. people who were getting hurt by this guy. Yeah. And uh, the attacks basically were very similar in pattern. You know, you know, I, I would say that's why they make it to Netflix. You know. I know. They're, they're, Netflix frees everyone. Yeah. It's it's it, it's um the, the cases that go there that are very interesting. That's like the five percent, you know, two percent, three percent. Like you, the probability of success on the case is so are so low. Yeah. And the the fact that it was open is kind of almost impossible. But due to some information, I'm not saying it's impossible, but it doesn't happen often. But is that public record for anyone to take a look at the evidence and understand it? For the for a case like that, it's a public case. I think I think you can kind of look into it, and research it, but. Um, um, there are some seals with respect to certain criminal dockets. It's not like you can see everything. Same thing with the family court, like if you're filing for a divorce or something, or, uh, or TRO, those dockets are not disclosed. You can't just search it up, you know. Um, and that, uh, the court wants to maintain the confidentiality of people, right? So they, they can't just reveal all that information. Someone does, you know, someone that's involved in that doesn't want to be, doesn't want that information shared with them. Unless it's like you're a sex offender and you're living in the certain areas and they're involved with respect to that as well. But um, That's crazy. Yeah. Like, that's one of those success stories. Yeah, but but ninety five percent are not success stories, right? Unfortunately, so we're happy for for the ones that are able to kind of um, live their life. You know, he lost, does he he lost get so money much from the state for being wrong? I mean, because um, the, the sometimes sometimes the state does uh, kind of kind of they take care of that individual, but it's it's never enough. You know, um, it's never enough. You know, that's, that's all I can say. You lose 21 years of your life for a substantial period. What can make up for that? You know, a million dollars? So here's another one. Yeah. You're old enough to remember this O.J. Simpson case. Yes, yes. And you know what they said? It's like, if the glove fits, he did it. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. But what got him off that got him free? What did the attorney do at that point uh, At that point in time? I think um, he took the glove. I think they made him try it on yeah. in the trial. Yeah. He said, here's a glove, put it on, and it didn't fit. 
And they, they kept focusing on that statement. Wow. And they kind of pounded that statement in the, um, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the jury's head. They kept repeating that statement over and over. And it's, it's kind of like a psychological ploy where if you're repeating something to someone, they can start believing it, right? And that's I, a, I think that's more I, like a show then. I, yeah, I think that's not even that's not even um, see that's that's showmanship, that's yeah. that's legal knowledge and that's psychology. That's also coaching, like yeah. you know your yeah, and yeah. and and you have to be a litigate a litigation attorney yeah. that's experienced that's dealt with a lot of cases can kind of do that, you know. Here's another thing. Yeah, everyone in this country is following yeah. Johnny Depp versus Amber. Mm-hmm. And you know, it was like making rounds on TikTok, yeah. all Instagram reels was, and everything. It was all over social media. The trial was ex- many were days. their breakdowns, and you're like, and, who's this person? Yeah, and it, it's it's unfortunate. I don't want to comment too much about you know that case particularly, but I, I I do think that the jury made the correct decision, and I do think that it was an unfortunate reality. You know, with with you know the to a certain extent of the Me Too movement, you know, someone trying to take advantage of that. And, um, and 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 you know the evidence was unfolded. You know it was revealed with respect to the things she did and the footage and her statement and what Johnny Depp said. So it was a very interesting case. But think about it: a case like that. Think about the cost. You have and to have a jury. You have to pay the attorney. She's actually to, appealing it too because she's saying that the jury would go home, watch the news, watch social media. Yeah, the they're not supposed to be influenced. Yeah, right. But they're basically influenced. Yeah, but a case like that, it's, it's, it's very hard to. They're not supposed to. Technically, a jury's not supposed to be influenced, but I'm sure it's an argument that can be raised, right? That's the thing. I don't think she's going to be successful if that's your, if that's where you're trying to go with that question. But um, it was a very interesting case. I, I did follow it to a certain extent. Um, I saw some of the, the direct examination questions by Johnny Depp's attorney, um, the female attorney. I think I forgot her name. She killed. It. She did. A, she did an amazing job. And the she way got her question, she got her, and that's the thing. That's that's also psychology, right? That's showmanship, psychology, understanding who you're dealing with, how to ask the question, the way, the tonality of the way you ask it. Yeah. It's all skills with respect to psychology. It's not even just legal skill, right? But the way you put the question, you know, you propose the question, put it forward, the way you ask it, how assertive you are, how nonchalant you need to be when you're asking other questions, um, and kind of just taking them down the road to where your where your end goal is. Like you have an end goal, yeah. but you have to you have to ask questions to bring them to that end goal, right? So if someone says yes, then you go to, it's a sequence, and you have to take them down the sequence to your goal. Yeah. Uh, and if you're a skilled attorney, you can do that without them understanding why you're asking the question. So basically, you have to coach your client as well as explain to them how they should act. So it's hard coaching clients with respect to how to react and what to say and, and, and not to say too much. So um, you know, if someone's asked a, a question, you know, um, were you at home? on December 5th and they say the answer is were you at home on December 5th it's a yes or no answer yeah. they say yes I was home I was cooking I was throwing out the trash I, and all of a sudden they start giving all this information that they don't really need to provide yeah uh, and that's kind of that's where the coaching of the attorneys circled around controlling what you say and just answering the question that's asked yeah. a lot of times clients and people have a tendency to provide more information than what they're required. I noticed in the Amber Heard case is uh, Johnny Depp's uh, attorney was basically kind of getting under her skin by like saying like, "Yeah, I bet you did that." Or yeah. Then she's like, "Yeah, strike that off." 
And then, yeah, she strikes. So she knows that she's not supposed to make that statement, yeah. but she's doing that to get under her skin, and she retracts it immediately. Yeah. So that's, you know, so uh, it, it's a skill set because now it's affecting, it's affecting Amber Heard to testify in a coherent and logical manner because now she's riled up and her emotions are involved. Now what's going to happen? She's going to start saying things that she may not want to say, or she might say, say things out of anger, or her testimony is, is distorted because she said one thing and then her testimony changed later because of her anger. Right, so obviously controlling your anger, controlling your emotions is part of part of being a good opponent, being a good uh, you know uh, uh, witness, um, and also as an attorney, you have to control what you say and when you say it and how you say it. Right, so if I'm in a deposition and I ask a question, sometimes I ask a question to rile up the individual to give me the response that I want them to give because they're not going to give it any other way. Yeah. So I have to ask certain questions. Um, to have, and, and that's required, but it's, it's kind of part of the job, I feel, you know, to, 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 to gather that information to help represent my client. If I'm not doing it, I'm not, I don't think I, I would be advocating for So when client, you say getting information, like, for evidence. Extracting information. Yeah, but like, do you have to do the work to go look for more evidence? There's always, there's always searches that you have to do, you know, on the civil side, if someone has assets, you have to search that. If there's some money that's hidden, you have to search it, you have to get bank accounts, subpoenas, um, you can depose the person, you can ask them questions at the deposition. So there are various things that you can do uh, with respect to uh, gathering information uh, and gathering evidence. But, you know, attorneys have an ethical duty to share any discovery that they have within their profession. So yeah. if I have something that's going to hurt my client, I'll give you a perfect example. Yeah. Um, a, client, a case that we're ha uh, handling right now is um, I have a client that uh, is in the marketing sphere. He used to work for a company. Um, and now he has his own company, he's marketing. Nice. But he he had a client um, that he, uh, it, when he was working for that original company, he was considered an independent contractor. So the terms of that relationship were unclear. Uh, and I get, he wasn't being paid W-2, um, he was being paid 1099, so he was classified as an independent contractor. Yeah. But the contract said he's an employee. So there was a bunch of issues with respect to that contract. Yeah. He ended up taking an employee, uh, not an employee, a, uh, uh, a client, of the original marketing company okay. and he made $90,000 off that client through his own business yeah. or X amount of dollars. And then the question is, um, okay, does he, is he required to, uh, to share, you know, that information? Because now that's the next question. How much money do you profit off, yeah. off this individual? Because now the whole litigation is initiated. They know the client was quote unquote stolen. Our position is not that he's not stolen. Right. Um, but, he says, okay, I don't want to produce this. Like, I only want to, naturally, I, I don't yeah. want to produce this. Can I only produce this? No, you have an eth we have an ethical duty as, as an attorney to make sure that everything's produced, put on the table. Yeah. Because if we don't, it's a legal ethical violation. But also, in terms of your case, it's, it could be uncovered anyway. So there's no there's no point in hiding when you're not uh, when you're not in the wrong. That's kind of what I what I tell people, right? Yeah. So a lot of times people try to hide something, but they're not in the wrong, so don't hide it. Yeah. In fact, show it. Be like, yeah, here you go. This is this what this is what I got paid. Yeah. What's wrong with it? You know, this is my position. You know, and I think that actually helps because when you hide something, um, intentionally or unintentionally, it makes it seem like you're trying to be deceptive and that yeah. you're in the wrong. Yeah. So these things are important with respect to you know, exchanging information as well. So we have to advise clients of that, yeah. um, and they have to then notify us of, of any information that they they know and they may have not told us. Um, because we can't represent a client, you know, zealously if we don't have the information we need to represent them. And then we don't want to get backstabbed later with information we find out through the other side. You know, they subpoena a bank and yeah. they gather that information.
right? Uh, and then we get hit with, oh, you didn't produce this, you were trying to hide XYZ. Yeah. Rather than us just producing and saying, here you go, right? Yeah. So there, there, you know, that, that arises and it's important, you know, to see information here. Yeah. Well, Raheem, I think we're gonna wrap up because- Thank you, you seem pretty tired. <laughs> I mean, I did work all day. But that was fun though. Thank you, but We have to do this again. Yeah, we'll certainly talk in more, more detail next time, for yeah, sure. That was yeah. a lot of detail. But... It was, there's a lot of information. Yeah. I appreciate your time. All right, well, thank you for coming in. And uh, thanks guys for listening. Make sure you check them out, Ibrahim Law. And I'm with Junction if you look them up. No, Ibrahim Ahmed Law. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Shameless plug. We'll there see you, you guys in the next one. <laughs> thank you. Thank Have you so much, guys.